0: Hello and welcome back to Season 2 of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In the first 50 episodes I gave you an interfusion of narrations directly from my book and the occasional conversations with Pete Wood. I hope you enjoyed them despite my amateur dramatics voiceover. In this new series I aim to bring you new conversations from fascinating people around the world, people who have a connection with Zimbabwe, albeit at times rather tenuous. I hope you find them informative, interesting, and above all, entertaining. We all know the adage about the cup being half empty. Well, my guest today is undoubtedly a cup half full kind of guy He's one of the most inspiring men I've ever had the honor of interviewing. Bruno Hansen is without a doubt, proof that whatever life throws at you, just calm down and carry on. Born in Zimbabwe or formerly Rhodesia in 1971, Bruno grew up on the shores of Lake Kariba. By all accounts, it was a bucolic beginning to life, but that was short lived. Bruno Hansen, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood.
1: Hi, Peter. Thanks. That was a a lovely introduction. Thanks for making me sound so um, fantastic. And um, I I think I might just add to that with the the cup half full, the cup half empty thing. I think a friend of mine once long ago said to me, Bruno, you're the kind of guy that just drinks the rest of the cup when it's half full and (laughs) swigs it back. So that just brought back an old memory.
0: Thanks. <laughs> so it's more to do with an empty cup.
1: <laughs> well, I think but
0: I keep an drinking... An empty cup, yeah. well well earned. Yeah, exactly. Well earned. Exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah, but, thanks for having me on. Uh, uh, it's great to speak with a the fellow Zimbabwean. It's an absolute pleasure. Bruno, let's not beat around the bush. You're paralyzed from the waist down following a botched carjacking in Cape Town 22 years ago. Let's get to the carjacking a little later. For now... Can we dial back to the 3rd of September 1978 and the first traumatic event that changed your life? Can you please tell us about that horrific day?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, We were living in Lake Kariba in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia in those days. And it was an amazing lifestyle that that I had really. You know, walking to school where there were elephants and baboons in the road and, um, you know, nightly... The nightly showing um, down in the valley of of sort of skirmishes between the armed forces and the terrorists, and I used to watch the tracer the tracer bullets flying through the air as a seven year old, you know, wondering why bullets flew uh, so slowly. Um, and um, it was just a it was a it was a, a very interesting, wild, adventurous place to grow up, which I thought was just normal as a seven year old. I didn't know how the kids grew up. Uh, we were bombed and mortared in Kariba town a number of times where we used to have to run into bomb shelters. And the very first time was I got left on the street alone. I'd been uh, cruising around with a friend, Sebastian. We'd gone to get sugar. My mom was making us a cake and then we started getting bombed. And um, everyone, uh, he fled and I just left, got left standing in the street watching these mortars flying over and I could hear the whistling. And um, so that was the kind of growing up in, in Kariba. But I think my parents knew that things were getting um, a little bit dodgy. Um, and so they hopped on an airplane and were going to fly to, uh, I think it was South Africa, I think at the time, or you know, via Salisbury, I think, um, to go to the Australian embassy and we we're going to apply to to move to Australia. And so I was staying with my aunt and uncle. We dropped them at the airport, waved, waved the, the, the airplane off, you know, very exciting in those days when you went to an airport. And uh, we went back home. And I remember, remember sitting on the floor, on the carpet, and the radio was on. The news was on, and then the the bulletin came on and said the Hanyani flight, whatever it was, eight five one, whatever it was.
0: 825 eight five.
1: Eight two five was it? Yeah. The 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 Viscount eight two five has been shot down. Uh, no known survivors. And I remember listening to the to the man's voice, and my aunt was in the room, and she just collapsed on the floor, in tears. And I looked at her, and I was like. Ooh, What's wrong, And then my uncle came in, and he was listening, and he started crying and And uh, I just looked at them, and I deep down knew as a child that my parents would be fine. I don't know why, and I remember saying to them, "Don't worry, they're just on an adventure, they'll be okay. <laughs> Whether that was complete naivety or the wisdom of a seven year old who knew nothing, I don't know, but uh, that was the that was the start of um, something. That sort of seemed to carry on in my life.
0: You know, I mean, there were, there were four crew and 52 passengers on board. Um, mm. f- actually, 38 died in the crash. But, right, okay. Um, but your parents survived. But the, 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 the nightmare didn't actually end um, after the crash of the plane.
1: No. I mean, funny enough, I was just talking to my dad about it the other day, uh, a couple of days ago, about the whole... Plane crash. Um, oh, where do I begin with this? Um, you know, they were the only husband and wife to survive together. So everyone lost someone on that plane. So the the plane crashed. Um, a lot of people sort of survived the crash because the plane flipped. The, the guy landed it perfectly. John Hood, the, the pilot, landed the plane and then it hits a donga, like a hole in the ground, and the plane flipped and broke in half. So some of the people survived in the tail section, and they are the four, I think, four or five that went out to a village looking for water. My parents stayed behind at the plane crash site, helping the survivors, um, you know, that were some of them were in a really bad way. And that's when the terrorists arrived The terrorists arrived and then lined everyone up and sort of executed everybody and, and shot them, then bayoneted them. Um, and my parents just lay, lay there pretending to be dead. And um, they survived it and spent a couple of days out there um, before the paratroopers came in and found them um within that small story there's of course a long version of what they went through Uh, but to survive the plane crash then to survive the shootings then to survive the stabbings and then to survive the hyenas it was almost their time was was not Uh,
0: quite incredible i mean uh, i should say to people who don't know of the story it was shot down by a surface-to-air missile by joshua and coma zipra guerrilla forces um, and it was those very people who managed to get to the plane before the Rhodesian forces got there and massacred the the remaining survivors, um, your parents surviving it. I mean, th- so they clearly witnessed the whole entire Oh,
1: plane. Oh, they witnessed everything. They witnessed everything. My dad was saying, you know, and my mom was telling me that, um, you know, just a meter away, you know, they were lying there. She, would, she was looking at the guy's boots And while he macheted someone to death, you know, it was violent. It was traumatic. It was wild. It was crazy. It's a movie scene, but my parents are the most down to earth, non-judgmental, sweetest, nicest people on this planet. It's quite incredible. My dad's nearly 80 and just yesterday he was up climbing a ladder, like a nimble 15 year old, you know, screwing pieces of wood into the side of the shed, putting a roof on the shed. And I took a picture of him. I was like, how many 80 year olds do that in the world? (laughs) You know, um, And I think from that, from that instance of what they went through and survived it, 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 um, it, it taught me something, you know, how, how trauma is not necessarily a bad thing, how it can make you grow as a person and how it can, you know, strengthen your belief in, in, In something different in the world, whatever that is, let's call it supernatural, let's call it the X factor, let's call it God, whatever we want to call it. There's something out there on this planet and in this universe which we don't know about. And I think that event that they went through, and then me not really understanding it as a child, but then it was I got affected when I saw them in hospital. When I saw them in the hospital afterwards, that's when I remember crying for the first time, because um, that was all new to me. But Um, I think that was a training ground for what I went through
0: later in life. Mm. Um, Bruno, I've got to tell you about something. You know, we talk about six degrees of separation. Um, In a previous podcast in my series one, I talked about this event um, because we were actually on holiday at Lake Kariba at the time. We were at a a fishing camp called Tishinga, which is across the lake. Um, wow. and, a, and a friend of ours, Bill Francis, had to get to Salisbury for a meeting and he took off across the lake in his outboard motor. And it was a very choppy day and he really labored all the way to Kariba town and he actually missed the flight. I mean, wow. so that's, that's our sort of link to that whole thing. But isn't that extraordinary? And then I find out that, yeah. um, you know, I, I hear about you and hear your, uh, your parents' story. So, yeah, understandably, yeah, that's, that's understandably, you left uh, Kariba and moved to South Africa, thus beginning probably some of your happiest years of your life, becoming a teenage beach bum.
1: Yeah, yeah, basically, some of the happiest days of my life, but some of the most disturbing as well, you know, straight from a war zone, straight into an apartheid era, which I didn't understand. Uh, I, I went to 14 different schools inside South Africa. My parents moved around a lot once we hit South Africa, um, and then from South Africa, we also tried to go and move to Portugal and to France, to Spain, to Denmark, and then back to Africa. Um, you know, it's that it's that pull of Africa which keeps pulling people back there. The love of the big skies and the you know the big white smiles. Um, but the I would say that my teenage years in South Africa were the happiest and the people I grew up with at school, those are like my brothers now and we're displaced around the world. Um, but at some times it was quite traumatic in South Africa as well. I was a Royneck, you know, going yeah. to an Afrikaans school in the North. Uh, I was beaten a lot of the time. I was peed on a lot of the time. Um, that book, the power of one. I read that book, saw the movie and I saw myself in there as I'm sure many other English kids do or English, not really English, but whatever, foreign kids growing up in a, in a South African Afrikan society um, went through. And um, that taught me how to fight. You know, I, I, I played the piano. So <laughs> my, gran, my gran had taught me the piano. And she was a concert pianist from, um, uh, funnily enough, she was voted the best up-and-coming pianist in the world at the Royal Academy of Music in London when she was 17 years old. And I don't know, that was like in the early 1900s, whenever that was. And um, so she was a, a gifted pianist. So she taught me a bit. And of course, getting to South Africa and then thinking around at the piano, man, that didn't go down well with the tough Afrikaans uh, farm boys, you know? And so I was really ostracized and grew up very out, out of the little cliques and groups at schools. And, but I learned to become a chameleon. I learned to, to blend into my surroundings and you know almost flow like a river. You know um, and um, it was it was a really great training ground once again for later in life of how I sort of approach things in the world but then getting to Port Shepston High School down on the South Coast that was where I belonged. you know because I knew that the ocean was for me
0: and um, that's where you learnt your love of the sea and being able to yeah, yeah. lose yourself well, actually, in the ocean y-
1: well, funny enough, when we left Zimbabwe, the very first wave I ever caught in my whole entire life was on Lake Kariba on a windsurfing board. I paddled out, the wind came up, these small little foamies came through getting, with a wind chop, and I and I sort of just instinctively paddled on one of these small foamy waves. Of, I was probably about 40 meters off the shore, and I caught one of these waves. as a seven-year-old on this 10-foot uh, windsurfing board, this old dog of a thing, really. And um, I sort of re- lay on my belly as a, as I caught this wave in, and I just sort of stood up as I sort of reached the small beach in front of Caribbean Bay there. I think it was Caribbean Bay it was called. And then one of the <laughs> one of the guys on the one of the local guys there yelled at me, and he called me, "Hey, Lighty, watch out for the flatties, man! You idiot, get out! <laughs> you know the crocodiles."
0: <laughs> the was flat dogs.
1: me, "Yeah, the <laughs> flat dogs, watch out for the flatties." I don't know what he's talking about. Like what? I'm, so when we left after the air crash and we went down to South Africa, we went down to a place called Port Alfred, and that's when the first time I saw the ocean properly. And I looked at the ocean and I knew this
0: is what I want. I and want so, more
1: of whatever that is.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and and so Bruno, after lo- leaving school, you backpacked. Uh, was it to Indonesia?
1: And yeah. Got so a, got a job yeah, as a, yeah.
0: a boat boy.
1: Yeah. So basically. I, I did schooling in South Africa, um, grew up on the South Coast, uh, surfing, spearfishing, diving. And then I, I studied through the Navy and ended up working at sea for the Safe Marine and, and sailed to Japan, Taiwan, Korea, uh, Singapore as a, as a 19-year-old. Well, you've and really packed things in, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, just living fast. Yeah, so I did that for a number of years, two, two, three years while I studied for the Navy. And then I had to owe them time back, you know. And then it was sort of the changeover where Nelson Mandela was taking over, change of the country. So I ran away from the military service, just sort of absconded. The ship landed back in Cape Town and I just disappeared. And because I'd heard rumors that people were just fleeing the military and the police. So I was like, "Mm, I'll be one of them. I don't want to give them four years back in my life. (laughs) And so I got a free education out of it, which was great as an engineer. And um, and then I decided to uh, yeah just pack a bag, take a surfboard, and head out into the wilds. And I went to Indonesia and and uh, no, I came to London first. Uh, came to London, worked for six months, uh, loved it, hated it, one of those. And then headed out into Indonesia and just travelled the islands, uh, you know, um, just living the life of adventure, meeting beautiful people along the way, beautiful girlfriends, um, beautiful places. I just had a great life, you know. I seized. I seized life. I loved my legs. I used to run all over the place. And on that trip, I met a, a surf char- I met a yacht of these guys that were sailing around the world. And it was a South African yacht. And so I became friends with them. I, I jumped on the boat with them. They invited me aboard. Uh, I think mainly because I was with a really beautiful girl. And I think the sun had his eyes on her. I think that's why we got invited on. But I soon proved myself on this boat and they loved what I could do. And then I got called up to the Navy in Denmark because I have a Danish passport. So I got suckered back into the Navy in Denmark. Um, so I had to leave that big trip, go and do my military service in Denmark. And on in the military service, I wrote a letter, an actual physical letter, which I've, we've all forgotten how to do. And I wrote to, to these people that I was on the boat with. Somehow I had their address. And I said, I'd like to come back and work on the boat as a boat boy, and I'll work for free. I said, just w- I'll work for free. I just want to be able to surf and and eat. And so they said, yes, come. And I arrived, I had to make my way back out to Indonesia after military service, uh, to one of these small islands called Nias. Um, I met the yacht out there, that, that week took me, t- uh, that trip took two weeks just to find the boat. And then unbeknown to me, after three months of working on the boat, they made me the captain. And I became the youngest surf charter yacht captain in Indonesia at the time. And that was where my life really took off in, in, a, in the happiness mode of being paid Quite a bit to wear board shorts and surf the best waves in the world, and to take people surfing.
0: And life couldn't be any better. Oh, but then the second yeah. most traumatic event happened in 1998. Probably, hmm. arguably, the the biggest event of all. You yeah. Well.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I think I look back on it. And yeah, it was a big event. Uh, you know, I got paralyzed from the waist down but it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to me, to be honest. And in, in one of, uh, I did a human, the humans documentary with, uh, young Althus Bertrand, the French guy. And, um, when they were interviewing me, I said that, uh, if I, if God himself jumped down in front of me right now and said, Bruno, I'll give you back your legs, but you forget everything that you've learned over the past 20 years. You know, I'll just tell God to keep his legs because it's been an amazing journey. And so I was working on the surf charter yacht, uh, God, it was an amazing lifestyle. It was really amazing. I felt I'd gone back in time, and it was exciting. It was amazing. I had really had to man up and fix things. And it's a dangerous situation, you know, on a yacht out in the middle of the wilds and picking people up, taking them around. There's no marinas, you know. It doesn't exist. Mm. Out in the west coast of Sumatra is very wild, still to this day. But in the late 90s, it was extremely wild. And... um and so what happened was I flew back to South Africa to meet the boss, uh, the owner of the yacht, who was quite a wealthy man, and I was quite ambitious. I knew that uh, surfing in that part of the world was gonna take off, so I wanted to uh, buy a big catamaran, and I wanted him to pay for it, and I would put the work into it, and I would then own half the boat, and I wanted to be half of the business, of a surf charter business, and then, of course, I, you know, we could expand this business. So I was ambitious. As much as I worked for free and I was just a boat boy and then became a captain that got paid, I was very ambitious. I wanted to do great things. And, um, and it was on that trip in Cape Town on the way back to the airport early morning, I was driving with a girl and we got carjacked. We were in a convertible and we, we were in an attempted carjacking that went horribly wrong and these guys botched it. And the car flipped, landed on the roof. And from there, I broke my back and the girl I was with got badly burnt. Um, the actual hijackers came back for us and started beating me quite badly while I was still stuck in the car with my legs stuck under the seat with a seatbelt on, hanging upside down. They dragged me out and were beating me. And then the car started rocking on the roof. And they really dragged the girl out. Uh, let's call her Samantha. I won't give her give the proper name, but Samantha dragged her out. And she was lying there. And of course, these guys wanted to do some strange things with her. And the car then rolled. And as the car rolled back down the bank, I was half out the window. That's what broke my back. And the car landed on top of her. And then I listened to her scream for about four hours while I was in and out of consciousness before somebody found her. And um, yeah, and so that was a start of of a of a dark, dark road that I went on for a number of years, um, trying to find out who I was, where do I belong? I have no money. I was broke, mentally broke, physically broke, financially broke. My parents were living in Uganda. They had lost their business in Zim again. They'd gone back to Zim and had a mind. They lost that. And, we're now living in Uganda, so but that was a really, really uh, t- uh, the start of a quite a difficult scenario. Um, and I ended up staying in England, and England was really good to me. You know, I got uh, I got given a place to stay, and uh, I think they gave me about four hundred pounds a month, the government, and um, it helped me it helped me stabilize to be able to buy food, <laughs> basically. But I still had this yearning of adventure, and I needed to go back out into the world. And so I decided I needed to cross the Indian Ocean on a yacht, and that what, that's what would keep me sane. But before before that decision, you know, I was ending up living in Mexico. I was doing heroin, drinking a lot, living down in a place called Rio Nexpa, and that's where I tried to actually commit suicide twice.
0: Didn't work. You, you know? played Ru- you played Russian roulette once, didn't you? Yes.
1: Yeah. I played Russian roulette with a bunch of gangsters and passed out. Uh, and then I tried to drown myself, and the drowning, trying to drown myself. I, I borrowed a longboard from this girl and this guy carried me into the water and unbeknown to them I was gonna go and drown myself and they thought I was just this paralyzed guy that was going out to try and just get some exercise. And I was basically like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. I'm sure they I'm sure that the guys who wrote Lord of the Rings saw me on the beach because I was white, skinny, and soulless, man. I weighed must have weighed less than sixty kilos and I was this gecko looking dude. And um You know, I thought no girls are going to want me. I was on drugs. I was losing my way. My parents didn't know where I was. And so I paddled out on this board, threw myself off very dramatically, giving myself to God and let the world remember Bruno (laughs) Hansen. And all I did was bob around on the surface with my ass sticking out of the water like a cork because I was, I'm a floater, man. I don't (laughs) sink, you know, and I was like, Oh, for the life of me, I can't damn kill myself. And now I started getting a bit angry in the water, frustrating, frustrated. And so I was like, okay, okay, I know that I'm a good freediver. So what am I doing? Okay, breathe out, breathe out. Okay, breathe all the air out. Now sink to the bottom. Ah, I couldn't sink to the bottom. And there I am flailing around trying to pull myself to the bottom of the ocean. Ah, And I pop back to the surface, climb back on this longboard. Now I've got anger inside of me. And anger gave me determination. And I looked at the waves out at the back on the reef. And I was like, right, I'm going to paddle out to these waves. And I am going to drown myself one of those waves on the head. And I'm done for now bearing in mind this is the first time i'm on a surfboard so my legs are flopping around like frog legs hanging off the back of this uh, longboard it was a 10 foot longboard and i can barely paddle so i must have battled 50 meters 50 yards from the shore and now i'm trying to get out to the main waves and there's no way on god's green earth i was going to make it out there and so i'm i probably moved out another 30 meters right uh, so out of the lagoon zone into where the white water is coming through and one of these small waves hit me on the side and twist turned me turned me facing the shore and it just bulleted me towards the shore and that was the first wave i've ever caught after breaking my back nothing compared to all the huge waves and perfection i've been surfing in indonesia before but but this 20 centimeter foamy that you see kids riding around you know when they go and play at the beach that's what i rode to the shore and all of a sudden i started smiling and i felt this joy come into my soul and the people on the beach who saw me ride this little wave and then they all started hollering and jumping up and down and whistling and so this little wave deposited me on the beach and I was so tired now this must have been gone and I must have been out for about half an hour 30 minutes roughly and I flopped off the surfboard exhausted but happy and confused <laughs> I'd left to drown myself and now I'm smiling I'm back on the beach I'm like, what just happened there <laughs> And I remember looking into this girl's eyes. She was looking down at me with those big, big brown eyes. And they used to call her Pocahontas on the beach. She was half Mexican, half Canadian. And every guy with muscles and bronzed, long, um, long blonde hair and big bronzed muscles and you know (laughs) was strutting around. And 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 they were all trying it on to this girl. And I used to get really depressed, excuse me, looking at that because I there was a time when women loved me, and now I realized I was in a place where no woman was going to want me no one wanted a paralyzed guy who looked like golem that's what was going on in my mind anyway she looked down at me it was 1999 going into the year 2000 it was the last day of 99. that night there was a bonfire on the beach we were all lying around bearing in mind people had to drag my ass through the sand on this wheelchair of mine so it was really a difficult situation and i ended up sitting next to her somehow by hook and by crook um around this fire and we fell asleep in each other's arms it was so surreal for me and i was terrified of course and there were a bunch of people around and i woke up in the morning and she kissed me and that was terrifying enough and she was so lovely and um, she was my first girlfriend and I, I saw her for 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 about a, a year after that or Think about you.
0: Think and most. and this was the big turning point in your life, and it that was, it was yes. the beginning of a very long journey to rebuild your upper body, exactly. rebuild your mental strength, rebuild your spiritual strength. I should say that you broke your back um in T twelve, which is the thoracic region that operates the whole of the abdomen downwards, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. You know, those first few years being in a chair, having these dead legs, you know, having to learn to drag them around was quite a big thing, especially going in the ocean or in the in a swimming pool. It was, I felt really heavy and, and just uncoordinated. But now I just feel like a mermaid or a merman, whatever you want to call it. Mm. You know, it's so easy. I find it effortless now being in the ocean. I'm a huge advocate for healing with the ocean, you know, people that have got physical problems, mental problems, spiritual problems, I like to say, just get your ass in the ocean. Get battered around in the waves. You know, get tired. Let the ocean kiss you. That's that's what I like to, to tell people.
0: I mean, and, Br- um, Bruno, you, you, there, there's this incredible documentary called Devotion, D-E-V-O-C-E-A-N, about mm. you. Um, it's it's breathtaking um and you speak a a lot about being reconnected with the ocean um and you also speak a lot about positive outlooks lead to positive people being around you yes um uh, you know it's it's such a beautiful documentary actually
1: yeah thanks you know that was quite an interesting way that that docu came about um i was in england at some point and we went to see the ocean film festival uh, there was the, the Australian International Ocean Film Festival. And we watched all these um, movies. Uh, they have a main feature of 45 minutes. And then they've got small five to eight minute um, movies that people have sent in. And it was a tours the a tours Europe and tours England, tours Australia and, and China and Asia. And anyway, I, I just watched some of, uh, in Exeter actually. And um, the, the, the friends I was with, one of the girls went over to the organizer and said, hey, we'd like you to meet Bruno. And anyway, she came over, the, the organizer came over. Hi, how are you? Oh, yeah, you surf this and that. And this is 2015. So I've had 15 years of getting back into the ocean, right? So I'm pretty good at, at what I was doing. And I hadn't yet won the world championships. I hadn't yet taken part in any competitions. But I had sailed the oceans and had been surfing a lot. And she said to me, why don't you try and make a documentary and submit it? And I laughed. I was like, "He's going to make a documentary about me? Anyway, I went back to Bali, forgot all about it. Met up with a buddy of mine who was just getting into filming and camera work and stuff. And we both put $500 down and we, by hook and by crook, we forest Gumped our way making a documentary. He just filmed me, took old footage that I had spliced it, mixed it, edited it. And um, he slapped this thing together and, and, and we, we sent it in (laughs) never thinking it was going to do anything. And it it cost us a thousand bucks to make that documentary wow then and that's when it hit the big it just toured and hit the big time and i still have people around the world just wherever i go in the world someone says to me hey are you the guy from the documentary the devotion i'm like oh yeah hi (laughs) so it really made an impact around the world and um and then i ended up winning the world championships the same year that it was released in 2015 so in one year i went from zero to hero and um in america and from those lessons I've been giving talks and I give talks to companies and to people, whoever wants to hear me, you know, flap my lips. But I basically say that we can all accomplish great things with minimal resources. We all have this ability. I won the world championships by arriving there with no surfboard, no team, no coaches, and I managed to win it. You know, we made a documentary on $500 each thousand bucks in total. We made this incredible documentary that toured the world and got seen by millions of people basically. And so, you know, it taught me something that we don't need huge backup. We don't need huge infrastructure and huge, uh, you know, vast training to accomplish things.
0: You speak a lot about small victories. Yeah, small victories. Exactly. Mm -hmm.
1: Everything in life is a small victory, isn't it? I think it's, uh, it's, um, but you know, if I get really honest with you, I, I preach a lot of these things, but I still, go through very depressing patches yeah. and I'm very honest and open about this to people that I sort of guide and teach on my, when I, you know, as, as an example, if I just give you one example, uh, last year, I had a, a soldier with PTSD from Germany. He'd been five years in Afghanistan and I had a guy in a wheelchair come out to Panama where we had been sort of half of building a camp, my cousin, and myself called devotion the Sea Habilitation Project. And I wanted to use the ocean to heal people. Now, I wasn't doing it selflessly. I wanted big companies to throw down the money and to send people out so I could make some money because, you know, it's just what I wanted to do. And I'm quite passionate about, you know, Bruno's boot camp. Getting people into shape. Um, a tough love uh, kind of vibe. Anyway, so we've got a soldier and we've got a guy in a wheelchair. The soldiers come to actually help me build and the guy in the wheelchair has come to visit me because i surf against him in in hawaii and these two characters were in in panama with us in quite a rough area uh, wild i mean raw and wild and jungle and crazy waves and i said to the soldier okay you michael have got a great body lots of muscles scrambled brains ptsd you sean have got a scrambled body not many good muscles but very good brains so together You guys are going to make one good human and let's go surfing. Follow me. So we had quad bikes and off we went. And I would drag these two guys. Now, Michael, the soldier, had never surfed. Now, Sean had surfed. But Sean used to battle to get into the sea. So I used to take these guys to some wild and crazy rocky places. So Michael now would have to carry Sean over the rocks, which then meant Sean used to thank Michael, the soldier, for what he was doing. This then gave Michael self worth. And all of a sudden he didn't have any PTSD anymore. That just dropped away. And I said to him, you don't have PTSD because you saw your buddies shot. You don't have PTSD because you went through horrific times. And because I told him my story, I said, you've got PTSD because you're not respected in life. Now you've been with your brothers, like a small tribe eating and cooking and living out in the desert of Afghanistan. And you know, your brothers will die for you. Now all of a sudden you go to a shop in Germany and the girl behind the counter doesn't give you any respect. That's PTSD. And he said to me that for three years of therapy that he'd had in Germany, after three days, he said I'd, I'd helped him in so many ways. Not me, just of what we were doing. He said at first he thought I was completely mad. <laughs> and so did the other friend in the wheelchair. They both thought I was completely mad. But afterwards, they both realized, like, you know what? This, like This works. And it is basically helping, humans helping each other and feeling self-worth. <clears throat> and and so this is you know in bringing it back to one uh, full circle is that I have a tough love situation tough love scenario towards people with problems. I'm like guys, get off the chocolate and the Coca Cola and spend more time in nature. And the ocean has the ability to heal so much.
0: Yeah, Br- Bruno, I-, I spoke at the beginning about three major catastrophes that happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so we haven't even got to the third one yet. I mean, it's hard to believe what you've been talking to me about, but there is another story. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was Boxing Day 2004. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so
0: I had just crossed the ocean in 2004, you know. And you were paralyzed at this stage?
1: Yes, so paralyzed in a wheelchair, um, <clears> you know, going through a, quite a depressing depressive moment in time, of course, after Mexico, you know, where I caught that wave, um, but now living in England and really depressed, um, I was sliding, I was sliding back into the dark zone, uh, I needed adventure, I needed, I needed sunlight, I needed the ocean, I couldn't just live a, a safe, sweet lifestyle, I was becoming soft, um, and so, okay, that's a whole nother story how I got to getting on this boat. But anyway, I climbed on a boat in Durban. It's another long, long story that leads up to that point, but we'll go straight to the crossing of the Indian ocean where a very, very close friend of mine, he's my, my closest brother to me, James Taylor. Um, Shout out to James who saved my life on a number of occasions and saved my soul. He joined me to sail this boat across the ocean and I was going to be captain. So, we treasure hunted along the way we lived on rice and fish that's it and we were poor sailors we didn't have all the fancy equipment we didn't have radar we didn't have uh, proper autopilots nothing we just we went hardcore and we sailed this 46 foot catamaran that had been given to me to use we sailed it across the ocean we got to the other side in thailand the area that i knew from my previous years of being a, a surf charter captain where for three months of the year, we would take the boat to Phuket Thailand where we worked on the boat and then of course took it back down to Sumatra So we arrived in Patong in Phuket. We arrived after this one-year journey and I was still a little bit afraid of the ocean because I realized being paralyzed sailing on a yacht is not a joke. It's dangerous it's 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 hardcore and I get battered a lot especially the way I did it with no money on this, you know, this rugged boat So we arrived there and James flies back to to Cape Town to spend time with his family to do Christmas with them. And that's when I got hit by the tsunami. Uh, Anchored in the bay in in Patong, and there's no waves in that bay. That's normally as flat as a pancake. But a two-meter wave came through, then a four-meter, then a six-meter, then a ten-meter. Now, after the two-meter wave, I realized something dramatic was happening. And so I cut the anchor line, didn't really know what I was doing, but I, you know, started the engines and I got sucked into a big whirlpool of about a hundred meter diameter whirlpool and that just spun me in circles and I couldn't fight this thing. Um, and then I sort of got slung shot out of it and I just knew I had to get into deep water. It's the safest place to be with a boat It's deep water. So it's sort of contradictory to, to, the inst- to, to, to what we want to do. You know, the instinct goes against what our mental the mental side of us tells us to do because we want to stay on land where it's safe but i i made it over the four meter wave and then the six meter wave uh i made it over that and then there's quite a famous picture that someone took of me his name was also bruno by the way funny and funny enough and he was in the top of the hotel and took a number of pictures of me on the boat going over these waves and so there's a there's a postcard that floats around in Thailand of me going over the six meter wave. And I actually have it. I'll send it to you often. But I've made it out and then the 10 meter wave came. This was a 30 foot monster that came breaking through the bay. And I just made it over that. And I looked into the barrel of this wave and every surfer, you know, always looks for the barrel. And I looked into this 30 foot barrel. And what went through my head was, Oh, I could surf that. <laughs> you know the brain works and so it works so fast in times of trauma and so i made it out there and i sailed around on my own for a number of days and james heard about this and then he flew back he just came back into a devastation and um and i somehow survived that by i don't know how because everyone died behind me on their boats
0: all the other people in that Patong Bay were killed Yeah. yeah
1: yeah also a lot of people on boats around me they just Stayed on the anchor, and when that big wave came through, it just, it just evaporated them. It was so much power. But after that, it's so that tsunami. I've always said that it's the most terrifying and the most beautiful situation that I've ever been in. But what it did was, it dispelled my fear of the ocean, because I realized that the ocean wasn't out to get me. I just survived. You know, I should have been the one dying. I'm alone, paralyzed on a yacht. How did I survive that? And I realized that it's very important in life to always be in the right place at the right time. And so always to keep a clear mind. And that is my big thing nowadays. And the the ocean then, that tsunami taught me not to be afraid of the ocean anymore. And I sort of became fearless after that, if you want to call it that.
0: This lack of fear uh, eventually led to you winning, what, like eight world adaptive surfing Um, championships? um no
1: i've so the i've won five world championships in a row so which makes me the only uh the only surf that i'm me and Kelly slater are the only surfers in history to have done this, and um I've won about eight uh, competitions overall sort of so there are other competitions in the world uh-huh. um, you know yeah. and so yes that was I realized that I was a nobody coming into the first world championships. I had no surfboard, no team, I surfed for Denmark. <laughs> the Californians hadn't even heard of where Denmark was. You know, I was surfing against the, you know, the French that had 20 in a team and coaches and waveologists and the Americans that had 20 in their team and also coaches and surfboards with Go Foster stripes and fancy fins and great board bags and they all had shiny teeth and they all looked good. You know, and then there was me. <laughs> alone. And I, I bought a surfboard in California for $100. It was a 25-year-old, they call it the egg. It was ugly as hell. It was green, and we call it the green mamba. And I was the underdog, and no one knew who I was. And I surfed the competition. And, but I, when I started watching others surf, I knew that I had a chance. And, um, yeah, and somehow I ended up winning it. And I've won it ever since. And I now have a name, quite a big name in the adaptive surf world but everyone knows who I am, and it's a great event because I have a lot of good, good friends from around the world, amputees, blind people, paralyzed, whatever it is. We're all just a bunch of reprobates, really, meeting up a few times a year to surf against each other, and the competition is fierce. And um, I've worked my way to a place now where you know, I surf pretty big waves, pretty radical waves, and I wanted to surf the same waves that I surfed before my accident. So I wanted to re- reclaim my life. And that's where I realized that we cannot have fear. We have to be fearless, but, um, understanding of whatever we go into. Um, because I think fear is a subconscious, we have that subconscious, um, thing going on in our heads where we can attract, um, negativity if we have fear. And I believe the opposite is true that if we are just clear and remain positive and focused about something and determined and stubborn on a good way, And so we can, we can also attract into our lives by circumstance and meeting the right people at the right time and keeping fit and disciplined. We then, you know, get to where we want to be in life. And so that's,
0: I think, how I've kept winning. I mean, Bruno, I've seen video footage of you trying to get across the breakers and constantly getting dumped um, and you just (laughs) don't give up and you drag yourself. And, And then, and then at the end of that, you've got to drag yourself up the beach again. You know, once you're bloody knackered (laughs) it's incredible but you you've adapted your surfboards but you've also adapted your wheelchair to be able to go over rough terrain and and more importantly onto sand and you've also adapted your motorbike which i thought was absolutely fascinating
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you know i think as humans we have to adapt we have to keep adapting in life if we want to keep moving forward we have to adapt you know I, i long long ago this wise wise old man said to me it's the it's the stiff tree that breaks in the wind learn to be flexible and if you look at the trees on top of a hill you know they're getting battered from a young age by the wind and the forces of nature and they learn to become flexible and powerful and strong and so i've sort of taken that philosophy into my life and i try to adapt to every situation and so you know wheelchairs as an example i was tired of breaking these wheelchairs these wheelchairs that i use are three to four thousand. Or dollars each. you know So I would use one for six months and just break it. And I got tired of that. So I started making my own wheelchairs out of uh, thin-walled stainless steel. And I make life-proof, bulletproof wheelchairs now. My wheelchair it cannot be broken. And um, I actually wanted to go into business with some people making wheelchairs for people, life-proof wheelchairs um, were guaranteed for life and fixed for free. And then this whole corona thing kicked in. So that sort of fell to the wayside for the moment but um yeah i like to adapt i like i like being curious i like to keep up with to keep up with people i want to keep up with the uprights and so yeah i want to ride a motorbike you want you
0: want want to keep up with the uprights i mean uh, let's let's discuss humor you joke about being legless you your friends call you indiana jones on wheels um (laughs) humor is something that has pulled you through and it's, it's the humor coming from your friends as well. Yes, definitely. So sometimes I want
1: to, sometimes I wish I had a microphone to the whole world and I want to say world people stop taking life so seriously, you know, stop being so stuck up with everything. It's okay. It's okay to offend people by mistake. It's okay to laugh at life, you know, this is a comedy show at the end of the day. It's a tragic comedy show. You know. And um I think it was Charlie Chaplin, wasn't it? I think it was Charlie Chaplin who said something like, um, in every tragedy there's but comedy. You know, uh, this yeah. world's been for billions of years. And and we, we we're around for what, 80 years or roughly, give and take a bit. And and you know, why are we also why is the human race at this moment in time so tight so taut, so angry you know it's okay it's okay to be humorous with things you know it's okay to be sorry if you've offended someone and it's okay to forgive and so i've i've found that the anger doesn't work you know anger anger can work in certain situations um if it's a personal you know frustration with something if you want to climb a tree if you like me if you want to get through the through a heavy shore break or get through the surf there's determination. You grit your teeth, you go for it. But there's got to be humor in everything. I laugh at my situation all the time. But make no mistake, I also am depressed some of the times. So, you know, and I'm quite open with this. I do slide into depressive states, but it's humor that keeps me alive and keeps me going. And I just I just have the, and I give people free reign. All my friends know with me, guys, don't hold back. Fat shame me if you need to. If you see me getting fat, fat shame me. Call me fat boy because that's what I need. I need to stay off these Cornish pasties and I need to be disciplined, do my push-ups, Because if I want to keep living the life I want to live, I need to keep my body in tip-top condition and my mind and my soul and my spirit. And I think that all humans have this ability, but we've forgotten because we've been living an easy life for the past after the Second World War, whatever it is, 80 years or so. Too much coca-cola and chocolate makes people angry as far as i'm concerned yeah Uh, i'm very passionate i'm passionate about things and people look at it as anger sometimes but it's just passion about we could all live so beautifully on this planet all humans together we can do it but it's the anger that is destroying
0: i'm I'm a bit worried about the time so i want to move on bruno there are eight tenets or life choices that um, you have spoken about. I'm just gonna mention all eight of them now. You don't have to talk about all of them right now, but uh, the first one, fear is not a bad thing. Live recklessly. I think that's a very Zim attitude. (laughs) Take life in your stride. Stay humble. Take a different approach. Trust your gut. Don't take life too seriously. And ask yourself what you want from life. Yeah. I mean, I think you just summed it up. Yeah. You
1: summed up exactly how I think I like to live for my personal life. And I'm, and I'm not coming from a place of, you know, you hear about this white male privilege. I'm not coming from that place. I came from a guy growing up in Africa, struggling, poor, you know. And I've got myself to a place of having amazing friends around the world. And being able to journey there was a time anyway before corona hit actually uh, (laughs) being able to journey to any part of the planet and stay with amazing people and so i like to say to people is that choose who you hang out with show me who your friends are and i'll tell you who you are you know stay clear and you know if you see a friend falling to the wayside in some way open your mouth say something to them you know i i think honesty is a huge is a huge, um, uh, what's the word? It's a huge thing that we need to reclaim back. It's pure
0: honesty. I mean, this is very moving for me because um, I didn't want to mention this before, but I am actually paralyzed as well. I use a walker. What? It was th- yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, course, but very, uh, very uh, very uh, yeah, uh, I had a tumor removed from the spine. And, uh, but anyway, yes. I'm not going to go into this now. But it's been absolutely incredible listening to you, I have to say, Bruno. Um, you know, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more from you in the future. Uh, before I leave, I just want to remind my listeners who might have disabilities or know people who suffer. Go to Bruno's website, www.brunocean.com. B-R-U-N-O-C-E-A-N dot com. You can find out more about how Bruno did it. Watch this documentary. Honestly, it's like a Luc Besson. Uh, from the Le Grand, Le Grand Bleu, you know, um, oh, read the articles uh, about how to adapt a wheelchair um, and even hire him for motivational talks. Seriously, Bruno, it's been very, very inspirational. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. And if we could just end off on a
1: slightly bit of black humor.
0: Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> May I? For it. Are, you,
1: are you ready? Because it's going to involve you. <laughs> so so Peter, you are paralyzed and you walk around with a walker, right?
0: That's correct, yeah.
1: Okay. So at the end of the day, you can piss
0: standing up. <laughs> I <laughs> can piss up standing <laughs> up. And I am very happy I can do that. And you ne- you never know, Bruno. I'm you might find me doing wheelies on Cooter Beach one day.
1: Well, Peter, you have an invitation at any point when I'm back in Bali. Please let's keep in touch and please it would be an honor to meet you in person and um, perhaps I could take you for a surf.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your life journey with us. Thanks, Peter. Cheers. That was the incredible Bruno Hansen speaking to me from his parents' home in the UK and no doubt chomping at the bit to get back to Bali for the surf season. What a positive guy, and I can't help thinking in these strange times We all need to take a leaf out of Bruno's book and be just a little bit more positive. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on MudBetweenYourToes at gmail.com. Goodbye.